Welcome, everybody. Let's talk real estate. Your weekly BS with Barry Saywitz about the current commercial real estate market here in Southern California. As we take a no BS look at both sides of the issues driving this market today to find the best solutions going forward. With our man right in the middle, it's Barry Saywitz. Hey, Barry. Hey, good morning, Paul. Uh, good morning uh, to everyone out there and a happy new year. This is our first show uh, of 2023, so I am excited. I am Barry Saywitz, president of the Saywitz Company, managing partner of Barry Saywitz Properties. And uh, I want to welcome all of our viewers and our listeners. We've been off for a few weeks. I'm a little rusty, but I'm excited to be back. we got all kinds of stuff to talk about. Um, before we get going, I do want to do a shout out to the Georgia Bulldogs, who had a convincing win. Uh, and so for those who are fans of Georgia Bulldogs, congratulations to you. And for those uh, TCU fans, you might want to take a day off and recuperate. With that said, uh, I want to shift gears. We're going to talk a little real estate today. We're going to talk a little economics. We're going to talk some big picture, some small picture. I'm excited to have our guest here today, uh, my old friend, Eric Sussman, uh, founding partner of Clear Capital LLC, uh, real estate syndication investment company, and also adjunct professor at uh, UCLA Anderson School of Economics in Real Estate and Accounting. Eric, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, so I got your bio. I got to read this because (laughs) it's not often that I read off a piece of paper. I normally just make stuff up, but this is so impressive. I've got to read it. So it says, uh, I got to read this part. So it says that you were voted outstanding professor 15 times by MBA students and one of the top 10 most popular business professors by Bloomberg Business Real Estate and one of the 20 most influential professors alive today. And then it also says in here, in his spare time, enjoyed partying in college with Barry Saywitz at Sigma Alpha Mu Fraternity. It's really an impressive rap sheet, if you will. Well, I will neither confirm nor deny the last part of that introduction, Barry, um, the partying part. But uh, let's just put it this way. My my Jewish parents are very proud of uh, some of the recognitions I've received, and as am I. Yeah. No, no. Uh, <laughs> very impressive rap sheet. I remember when I did join the fraternity i said who are like the smartest guys in the fraternity i want to like meet them and then they pointed me over in your direction and so you know little did i know years later you'd be uh, half conquering the world and teaching kids how to try and do the same so i'm glad to have you here on the show we'll catch up you got it looking forward to it barry yeah and, and just for the record there were no underage drinking or or any type of <laughs> illegal activities that uh, eric and i did that anyone got on film at least so I'm just glad some of the laws in California have changed since when we were students, Barry. Yes. So some of the things we may have done, which may have been on the cusp of illegality today, well. Yes. Well, we'll move on. <laughs> so let's talk real estate. I want to at least talk about your background. I mean, number one, uh, Stanford uh, MBA, UCLA graduate, get into real estate and accounting, really, or accounting first and then real estate. And then how did you sort of morph early on in your career into the real estate piece? Like what made you want to get involved in real estate? You know, candidly, I did a career pivot in business school, which is not uncommon for folks that go back to pursue their uh, MBAs, and I was one of them. I had been an accountant. I majored in economics business at UCLA when the two of uh, us were, were... As did I. I'm not even sure what he Were you econ business? Were you one of my... Cl- Jeez. I, I was. I was pre-dental. Uh, until the end of my first year when I realized I did not like going to chem labs and I was not any good at it. And so I switched. Well, I hope you, uh, you set the curve for us, Barry. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, 
So I yeah I went to Price Waterhouse after uh, undergrad thanks to one of my uh, professors at UCLA who guided me in that direction. I was grateful for that. And then when I went back to business school, actually it was a real estate professor up at Stanford, Joel Peterson, who was the former CEO of Trammell Crow. He pulled me aside after one class, maybe about week six or seven, and said, "Hey Eric, uh, have you thought about real estate as a career?" And I told him that I hadn't. Well, anyways, A to B to C to D and. There you go. Here I sit. So there you go. So Clear Capital, uh, real estate investment syndication, uh, you founded it with your partner uh, 25-something years ago or no? Clear Capital itself has been around now for about 15 years. There are four partners. The origins of the firm go back to the early 90s. Uh, After graduate school, I started a firm called Amber Capital, which is still around uh, has some legacy assets that it holds. But Clear Capital was really formed about 15 years ago. Focusing on value-add multifamily and you know trying to get through this challenging, uh, this particularly cha- challenging climate we're in now. Yeah, well, and it's funny how cross paths. Since uh, your focus is multifamily, we have a bunch of multifamily as well. You've seen the markets change here in Southern California as as well as around the country. And then obviously you got the recession, and then you have the run-up, and then you have the COVID, and then now I'll call we're post-COVID, and now pre-recession or. I call it recession because I think we're there. But um, I, I guess rewind for a second. So the value add stuff for those folks out there who are, are listening and, and talking. So the kind of syndications, the kinds of deals you put together, you go, you're better explaining it than I, but you go find the deal, you package it, you bring in private investors, individuals, investment companies, groups, what have you. And then you manage the property, you add the value, which is fixing it up and raising the rents and stabilizing the property. And then you manage it, hold it, and hopefully everybody makes money at the end of the day. Barry, I think you described our entire business model. So there you go. It's been great. I've been great to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And hopefully it all works out at the end. Well, that's exactly right. right. I kind of joke that, look, if you watch HGTV, which so many people do, and you think about fix or flop or whatever the heck their shows are these days, we do the same thing just on a larger scale, basically, uh, you know, upgrading, renovating properties and adding some common area amenities, sort of doing your spit polish and, and magic, raising rents and hopefully uh, generating positive returns for investors, et cetera. And what's a typical hold time if you have one on an asset or is it really case by case? Yeah, that's a great question. And it changes. You said it very well. The only I would say the only constant in life is change. So if you asked me that question maybe 15 years ago, I probably would have said three to five years. And now I'm sort of lengthening that runway a bit to five to seven years. And with this particular cycle now, um, with I think the downturn, we can discuss it. I'm not sure we're in a recession. We'll, we'll have that dialogue. But I think the hold period has has lengthened. The way markets go, and you gotta you got to go with the flow. And so when you're talking to your investors who are going to go into the deal, are you then having to explain to them, listen, you're going to have to leave your money a little longer if you're in this deal? Uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you need to have that expectation? Absolutely. It's funny. We were joking before the before we got on the, on the, on the radio here. We were saying how... Uh, you know, satisfaction is outcome less expectations and in life it's really really important you set expectations so you don't leave folks disappointed absolutely so we have to sort of lay those expectations about everything from hold period to returns to everything else but look i don't think there was a single economist on the planet who predicted what would happen with the fed in 22 yeah in fact i just read that uh there was a survey of professional economists. I don't know what the heck a professional economist is. As opposed to an unprofessional <laughs> exactly. amateur. Seems, <laughs> seems like an, you know, an oxymoron to me, like naval intelligence or something. Right. But in any event, they something surveyed you know 200 
professional economists. I assume the chief economist. They didn't economist, call you for this. You know, they left me off the list. <laughs> I was in the, the next 200, apparently. Uh, but, you know, the chief economist from Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or whatever. And I think the average uh, prediction for yield on the 10-year Treasury at the end of 22 among these professional economists was 2.04% of my memory is correct. And I think the largest, uh, the outlier, was one economist predicted 2.9%. Well, we blew those estimates out of the proverbial water. So in our business, and I'm sure it's the same with anyone out there, and you as well, Barry, in your, in your holdings, it's, hey, you have to dance in that new reality and figure things out. And yeah, and, and so I guess you know that sort of leads me into the next question in terms of what's going on today, because when you talk about returns for investors, when you talk about returns for yourself and you're analyzing an asset, trying to make heads or tails of it, when you're buying stuff in a rising market, when you're competing with people who have, I'll just call it stupid money or just not even smart decision making and just want to buy for the sake of buying, or they believe there's even more upside than you do, it's very hard to react and make deals and you wind up doing things that you wouldn't normally do in a normal market. You wouldn't normally pay more than the guy was asking. You wouldn't normally put down a 10 or 20% deposit immediately and just have it go non-refundable. And these are the kinds of things that I, in my world I've had to do, not because I wanted to, but because I needed to be able to control the asset. And then now you have this different dynamic, which is you have sellers, I believe, living in yesterday's world. Right, continuing to believe that the market will continue to climb when interest rates have more than doubled or about doubled, and then cap rates haven't quite moved yet to this to catch up to the fact that it's the new norm. And you have real estate brokers that are out there just telling sellers whatever they want to hear to get the listing because it is much more difficult to make a deal in today's market. And and just holding your hand up and selling the asset. Uh, it isn't the case anymore. I mean, there, there's a lot of different dynamics from a brokerage perspective, from an investor perspective, and then also when you go to buy the property and you go back to the lender, you're going to get a different story than you got six months ago, for sure. There's a lot to unpack there, and I agree with everything that you that you said. As I said, the only constant is change. Markets change, and players didn't have to sort of adjust accordingly. I think the market right now is in a bit of, as you described it in a different way, I call it price discovery, or if I'm getting wonkish and academic, the bid-ask spreads yes. have, have widened, that sellers may be still living in an age of nostalgia, thinking that they're still back in 21, and, and I'm not sure those are the good old days, but they're the good uh, recent days. And buyers are probably looking for deals and distress now, and that's they're too early to that party. So I think right now you're seeing it in just a real ebb in transaction volume. Yeah. Uh, not a lot is happening while people sort of figure things out. And, you know, look, Uncertainty is never a good thing for investors. And I think one thing probably everyone can agree on is there's a lot of uncertainty right now, whether it's economic, Stock political, market, right. you know, yada, 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 exactly. So that's uh, creating just um, sort of some stagnation in the markets and the way you described it. And the perception, at least from the circles that I've talked to, is that interest rates are going to do nothing other than either stay the same or go up some more. Going down, just not an option. Uh, and, and I guess we'll see, right? Like there's the, there's the, hey, I'll wait and maybe rates will dip. Look, you know, predictions are like opinions, which are like, you know, what's that, that old saying? The one thing I've learned is predict the unpredictable and, you, you know, you just don't know. As I said, not a single economist, including probably either of us, thought there'd be seven rate hikes in 22. Seven unprecedented and I read someone on my Twitter feed had a great quote it was I'm just effing exhausted of living in unprecedented times <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was a great quote 
so in this market, it's just hard to make predictions, at least in the short run. But what I tell investors is, look, if you're trying to time, it's not the fool's errand. Don't bother. You should be looking at the longer term, and and and, right. uh, and that's what I tell investors every day. And we've talked about this on the show with multiple guests, which is if you're holding for an extended period of time, and if you go in with a set of principles that make some sense, then you're going to be okay at the end of the day. But the, the fix and flip guy, the 16 units to 30 units, and that deal's done for the moment, right? And, and, no doubt. And, and I want to talk to those guys shortly because those are the guys that really are not good operators. They were just uh, around. And when you can't just hold up your hand or run a Craigslist ad and rent your place, or when some of your tenants stop paying you because they either lost their job or they're just stiffing you or whatever the case is, now it's a business that you have to right. run, right? Look, um, the rising tide lifts all the boats. And so you described it in different terms, but that's exactly right. So you, you could have been a, a, a blind squirrel finding the real estate, not yeah. the last uh, bit of the cycle. What I say is in down markets, in bear markets, you separate wheat from chafe. Yeah. That those that have staying power, that have maybe, you know, a little gray hair or less hair than uh, we'd like, that's the that's the positive that we've been through cycles. I've been through four down cycles and the great financial crisis and some of these young bucks who had it easy the last 10 years are having an education. I, I give you just one data point which hammers the point, you know, hammers at home is the, let's say the typical MBA student that I have at UCLA is, I don't know, 28 to 30. None of them have seen a bear market. Yeah. Their entire grown up lives. They think, oh, I just buy Bitcoin, I make money, and hey, this, right. this is the easiest game in town. And I think those days are over, and the quick buck folks are going to just ha they're having to come up, and so obviously. So, as we see the market go forward for 2023, how do you look at the disconnect between interest rates and cap rate, especially here in Southern California, because the spread is even more dynamic in that. You have cap rates for apartments at three and four percent. People are just buying on future, not even on current. There's no method to the madness. Uh, and do you look elsewhere for better deals? Taking the latter part of your question first, the answer is certainly. I mean, look, California has a net has had a net population outflow for each of the last what twelve years. Uh, doing we were talking earlier, doing business in the yeah. state is is no it's easy tough. task. No. Policymakers seem to be doing everything they can to actually exacerbate the housing problem and lack of affordability. So there's no question it's, uh, again, I quote Wayne Gretzky, it's where the puck is going, not where it has been. And and so you, anyone making investments has to sort of look to the future. When you ask about 23, just to go to the, sort of the beginning part of your question, I, I always am very careful about making these short-term predictions. Look, we're, we're investing in multifamily housing projects as do you, Barry. So to me, I have since 2000 looked towards the future and said, look, the future of housing in the United States is higher density multifamily. It's just yeah. the way that it is, like the rest of the developed world lives. The, the idea of American dream, uh, I think, was misguided uh, as much as it may have been a great slogan. And so I sort of look, again, I may be six feet under, but the long term is, is multifamily for housing. And so I can understand folks that aren't trying to make the quick buck that are buying in decent uh, markets and decent areas and good real estate uh, at even three and four caps if they're not over levered and they're looking at it as a long-term asset right. and they're not dealing with investors. I mean, that's the other thing I'll, I'll just, we can chat about is when you're in the business uh, as a syndicator or as a fund manager, 
you have you have to be active you really don't have a choice sitting on the sidelines and waiting if you're investing for your family legacy assets well that's a different sort of right. calculus and you can pay all cash you don't you don't even need to use leverage so right and, I, and worth... I would tell you the last i don't know 10 deals that we did we paid all cash because i couldn't make the deal pencil and i couldn't even get a realistic loan based on the condition of the property the rents where they were the loan to value the dynamics here in Southern California don't hunt, right? And so unless you're coming up with a massive down payment or unless you pay cash and then go back and get a loan later, now your risk is if I'm going to do that, right? So whether you're doing a syndication right. and you're going to do a takeout loan, you have to try and to a certain degree bet on or build in the assumption that I'm going to go back and get some debt later. And what's that number, right? And when when rates were stable, it wasn't really even a, an issue to consider. And now you got to go, hey, it's going to be higher. I'd argue with you, Barry, but I have I have nothing to argue, yeah. no, no, <laughs> argue no, look, with. These are, things that, well, these are things that we deal with every day. And so yeah, I yeah. say when you're when you're looking for properties in today's world, right, your firm, what kinds of assets? Obviously, you value add. Obviously, I can raise the rent. I can fix it up. But is there a dynamic that you're looking for? Or is it really that you pencil it based on today's numbers and then you go, here's where I think tomorrow's numbers are? I think it's the latter. Obviously, the underwriting has to be much tighter today than it was a year ago. And if, for those that are projecting hockey stick rental growth, I think they're inhaling some of California's finest, which is how we alluded to earlier. So you have to be realistic with your underwriting, uh, certainly on the leverage side, the cost of debt and, and rental growth. The big issue for us, which we haven't talked about, of course, is when you think about debt versus fixed versus variable rate. Yes. Our firm, given its value add focus, acknowledge I'm owning it that we you know we have more variable rate debt than I'd like on our balance sheet because yeah. you know again as I teach in class you've got to match your debt structure with your your asset structure and uh, as I said I was one of those uh, unprofessional economists that missed the prediction but um, and now it's it's tough to go back and fix the debt because now you're fixing it, it, it at a cash higher in, number correct there's no question uh, and there's no cash out it'd be cash in so no. We're, we're talking, and I think we are certainly not alone with you know, cash in refinances, and that's the reality. And look, um, it's been an incredible 20 plus year run, and, and anyone who's been in the markets long enough will know they humble you. I don't care how intelligent, brilliant, and, and, and wise you are, uh, you know, there's always something that happens. But as I said earlier, that's why you have gray hair and you've been through it, and you've got some staying power and a decent balance sheet to sort of deal with the. Uh, I, the, look, the thunderstorms I, we're now encountering. Look, I was like six two before the recession. I mean, look what happened. That's why I like you, Barry. You don't only lowered the curve in class. You made. I think I was the second shortest person in our fraternity. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, Sean Luna. There was Sean. Sean. I, sorry, Sean. Well, the three of us we can hang out. We have our own basketball team, right? So, but so let's. I want to talk about Southern California for a second because you and I both live here. You have assets here. Southern California to me is an anomaly to almost all other places around the country. Not all, but most in that if you look at vacancy for uh, multifamily housing, if you look at vacancy for decent apartments, it, well, I don't care whether it's Los Angeles, Inland Empire, uh, Orange County, it is super low, right? Is it difficult to find a place that's a decent place and Rents are still up and still on the rise. So my question to you is, do you still see the supply versus demand, I guess, dynamic still driving rents upward? Or does the promise of recession, the negative information that you hear on the news and the Internet, does that just bring people's perceptions down? 
I think those are not two mutually exclusive perspectives, Barry, actually. I think you still have the supply-demand imbalance in California. Look, uh, what did Will Rogers say? Buy land, they're not making any more of it. And anyone who's said, you know, whether it's the IE, uh, Orange County, or, uh, you know, L.A., there's just not enough land to build on anyways. And, and we and again, this a lot of it has to do with history. If you look after World War II and the expansion westward, Los Angeles, of course, the highways were coming in, the automobile came in, and this whole idea of American dream and sort of suburban housing. We built low-density housing. You look in Los Angeles, of course, 9, 10 million people. The typical apartment building has 30 units in it. That's the average which is just too small. And now, of course, you can't tear those down and rebuild for right. a number of reasons. So you still have that demand supply issue, which is, again, structural, long-term, and that ain't changing. As far as the short-term, I think rents are going to soften and decline, if nothing else, because, look, you have folks that move back home, the 20 to 35-year-olds, you have people doubling, tripling up yeah. just to save on rents. So that dynamic is happening in the short run. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think both are true. What we've also seen, and it's really happened only in the last, I'll call it 60 days, the combination of the holidays, uh, you know, high gas prices for a while, um, is we're starting to get some pushback from the tenants where they believe that they have some negotiating leverage. Like, hey, we're in our session. Hey, I'm struggling. Hey, this, right? Hey, I lost my job. And then I say, you know, gee, unemployment is still 3%. You could get a job, right? So the idea that you lost your job, you could get another job. And then the other dilemma is, hey, as a landlord, look, we're full, right? So, so how am I supposed to rent a place to you for dramatically less than what the market is when we're full? And so it's a difficult, you want to accommodate the tenant uh, and you want to try and keep good tenants. And you, as a landlord, you want to certainly stay full, but it is really a catch 22. And so for a guy who's value add, whether it's you or whether it's me, right? I don't have to have the last dollar on the table. We're no, our MO is not to screw over tenants and take advantage of them. At the same time, you have a business to run. And for you, you have investors to answer to. Again, I, I don't take issue with anything you said. I agree 100%. Um, there is some psychology that goes on. I think one thing, too, Barry, I would distinguish, at least in part, between what I call economic and physical occupancy. Physical occupancies are all you know, 95 to 97% across the board. You still have tenants that aren't paying. Yes. You still have the, look. You still the, have bad tenants. You, right? And you still, until February, you still, now Good, we can see evictions evictions now. Good luck with that. Right? So, <laughs> so look, you know, I, I told our firm, you know, when, when COVID first hit that I wanted to be a compassionate capitalist, and I still have that belief uh, profoundly. At this point now, we've got a lot of people that have sort of taken advantage, I think. Yeah, bad of, performers. And, and right, you couldn't, because they knew that you couldn't evict yeah. them and they just didn't stop paying the rent, even if they were working. We had, a, I mean, again, we had seven figures of unpaid rent across the portfolio. I think there's still a lot of landlords who are dealing with well, tenants and, that and, aren't paying. And all, every landlord I've talked to is like, look, I'm, I'm over it. Right. I, I did my piece. I tried to work with these tenants and the people that are That's left it. that aren't paying. They got to go. I, so now the courts are backed up and it takes longer to get them out. Exactly right. The, I, I think the one the one area if you, for job security is if you're a judge in the off, unlawful detainer court, you're, yes. you're, you've got well, job security for the foreseeable future. Probably. Well, I can't even get my attorney other than nine o'clock at night. He's like, I'm in court all day, every day. Yeah. So, so. anyway, so that's those are my, my thoughts there. I think, as I said, they're not mutual excuse. I'm still bullish on multifamily and California is great. It's going to be, you know, have some challenges, but uh, 
I think the short run rents are going to soften for sure. And what about rent control? I mean, jeez, oh, you had I mean, to. It's an all, Barry, I just had my breakfast. Really, yeah, it's 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 an all day conversation. But you you have rent control only in a few areas, and where they've had it, it's like I guess the, one of my questions for you would be: Would you buy in a rent controlled area? Yes, I just think you have to have your eyes wide open and understand uh, what that means, practically speaking. I've written and spoken for years on rent control. It's 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 unfortunate because almost everyone on both sides of the aisle will tell you housing affordability is an issue and is sensitive to it. Rent control is the, the one policy. It's it's just it's a look like any price control. You learn that in economics one hundred and one. It's a it's an easy salve for politicians, yes. right? We're just going to control so. the rents and and that's going to magically work. But look, economists may not agree on much. They agree on that. It, that they just don't work. It actually has the opposite impact. Absolutely. Politicians continue to sort of go for the you know, but they proceed to the easiest solution. So would I buy? To go to your question. Would I buy a rent control asset? Yes. But again, you just better make sure your underwriting is is is, is accurate. And if you're buying, look, one of the important things you need to look at if you've got a rent-controlled asset is how long have those tenants been in there? What is the difference between the rents they're paying under their lease contract, of course, and what the market would bear? And the wider that is, the more you can bet your bottom dollar that they ain't never going nowhere. Right? Never going to move. And you know, cash for keys, as we used to call it, certainly can make. You know, make those but proposals. in today's world, there's no number that makes but, any sense. But right, and I mean, it's the same with the eviction. And they're smarter tenants. You know, the one thing when I started uh, in this crazy business, there was no internet, and it's sort of just shocking to think about. So, sellers didn't have information necessarily. Even brokers and agents didn't. Certainly, tenants didn't. But now, you can go on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace yeah. or whatever. You can pretty easily find out where rents are everywhere and then negotiate accordingly and that's yeah, look, we had one tenant said hey my cousin got x from their landlord i you should give me at least x and i said i'm you should go rent from that guy right and uh you know it, that's not how the world works yeah. but so let's shift gears for a second uh cap rates right so where do you expect cap rates to go do they again i'm back to do they have to go up because six percent interest rate and a four cap doesn't hunt, right? It's a negative inversion if you're looking at the curve, right? Uh, and then uh, does it go up or uh, what happened? I mean, you have to have price correction. I mean, I yeah, there's a, there's, again, there's so much to sort of think about and unpack there. Remember, cap rate and the cap rate itself is based on a, a current static measure, whatever the you know current cash flow of the property is, of course, over the sales price. But you have a couple things to think about. One is if, again, the in-place rents are truly well below market, rent control can can exacerbate that. You can yeah. get some deceptive data on cap rates because you're basing it on an in-place rental figure that's well below where the market really is. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Transaction volume is way down. It's not like you're looking at uh, you know Google or IBM stock or whatever it happens to be where you get you know tremendous liquidity, lots of volume. Volumes are way down. So kind of assessing where the market really is. Is challenging, and then we talked earlier, Barry. Is there a lot? There's so much cash right now. Again, this is forgive the wonkishness a little bit here, but M2 money supply, which is basically what everyone thinks is money, cash, yeah. checking accounts, money, market accounts. You're still north of twenty trillion dollars, which is close to all-time record high. All of it earning negative real returns, taking into, in, into account inflation. Where does that money go? So as you said, Barry, you've paid cash. Okay, God bless. You've paid cash for some transactions. So you weren't necessarily thinking about that cost of debt in your calculations. You may have said, look, the cap rate's four, whatever the number is. Right. I'm getting somewhere between jack and squat. Right. 
in, in my But tomorrow money. I get a real deal, right? And then tomorrow, once I stabilize it, I'll go back to the bank and maybe I'll get right. So I think you know that keep that in mind. So I, I think you can still have that delta. Uh, just you're going to see this era of price discovery and sort of yeah, ebb and transaction, which is going to perpetuate. And I, and I see buyers, like you say, coming in, hitting below the belt as opposed to overbidding, which was happening not that long ago. And there aren't 10 guys standing at the table bidding anymore. Oh, well, look, I mean, if you look at the single family market, I mean, some of the stories were great. You know, every family would send pictures of their kids, the dogs, right, right. you know, try to make this sentimental connection with the seller, you know, to get the deal. I'm thinking this is an equilibrium. This isn't normal behavior. It's just, it's a, it's a house for right. God's sake. On the multifamily and commercial side, right, you saw multiple offers, hard money, you know, non-refundable on day one, yes. which, again, is sort of crazy. Not, crazy and not palatable, but you still see some of that. But some of that fluff has, has, has come out. Oh, the air is out of that balloon. Yeah, the air is definitely out of it. So. so we've only got a couple of minutes left. I told you to oh, go quick man. when we started, and it goes. We Jeez. could go all day. I need a couple more it's cups like, of coffee, and we'll just keep going along. But... I want to try and sum it up for the viewers and the listeners out there in terms of your perspective for going forward into 2023 from a higher level as, as the economist in the room, where do you see the economy going relative to the real estate? Is it price adjustment? Is it higher interest rates and, and, and lower transaction volume? Yeah, it's look, I've been at this for a long time. I've been teaching it this stuff for a long time. This is the most uncertain market that I can remember because of just so many moving parts. We even, we even mentioned geopolitical issues, of course, which are impossible to predict and what happens there. So it, it, it's this is a really challenging market. I see a lot of deflationary pressures out there right now, actually, and more of the data that comes in seems to be uh, their interest rate sledgehammers having an effect or just sort of market cycles. So I do, I, I don't expect... I may be a contrarian here. I actually expect the the Fed to ease off the pedal here sometime in the middle of the, of 23, and it wouldn't shock me at all if interest rates at the end of the year are, are lower than where they are today. It would not shock me. Expect the unexpected, I would say. But if you're anticipating some kind of tremendous recovery, we're back in 20 and 21 right. this year. Again, I think you're um, you're delusional. You're delusional and in, in inhaling something. So I, I I'm sort of take this this middle ground, uh, stay the course invest for the long term market timing is a fool's errand history tells us that over and over again we'll say that five years from now Barry when, when I'm back on the show hopefully before then uh, asset values will be higher yeah I mean look long term you stick to your guns you have solid investment model that you deal with and then you'll be okay at the end of the day the guy who takes unnecessary risk is uh, has a potential to get burned but I, I would also say, like, what is something that is the one thing, if there is a one thing, that sort of keeps you up at night that, that you think ha will have the biggest impact on the real estate market? I mean, is it inflation? Is it war? Is it gas prices? Is there a one thing, or is it really just the combination of? I think it is really the combination to me, as I said, because of, candidly, the variable rate debt in our portfolio. And if, if you know, the, if, we, if we're back in 1979 again, uh, which... God, talk about a hot tub time machine I don't want to revisit. Um, that would be, of course, that'd be catastrophic for so many, for, for, the, for all yeah. of the markets, frankly. I mean, just keep in mind, Barry, too, in 22, it was the first time in 150 years where both equity prices and bond prices fell by double digits. It didn't happen in 150 years. So 
you know, I think my that anonymous Twitter post on uh, living in unprecedented times is is, right. is not inaccurate. Got it. And how can people reach you at uh, Clear Capital if they're interested in investing or just finding more about uh, the company? Well, you know, look, uh, you can Google Bing or ask Jeeves if you must, but um, uh, so you can find us easily there. Our website, uh, clearcapllc.com. And uh, I think if you Google me, I'm the first Eric Sussman that shows up. There's a winemaker, Eric Sussman, up in Sonoma, who I wish I were. Makes a 90-point Pinot, by the way, for the record. And there's a, some white-collar prosecuting attorney of the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago. I'm, so I'm, I'm the real estate one. <laughs> Got it. Well, look, I appreciate you being on the show and sharing your thoughts and insights. Uh, and always good to catch up with you. Much continued success to you and your company and, and your family. And tell your wife I said hello. And uh, happily uh, have you back on the show later in the year or at the end of the year. And we'll recap and see how yeah, it went. we did. If, if I'm wrong, I'm my hoping, name is Barry Saywitz. Right. <laughs> I'm hoping we're not crying. And at least we got a smile on our face and uh, we'll, we'll take it as it comes. And, and for those folks out there that are looking at investing for 2023, it's tricky waters. There's no question. So be smart and, and get good advice. And uh, thanks for tuning in. I am Barry Saywitz, president of the Saywitz Company. And if it's Tuesday, we're talking real estate. We'll see you back here next week. I want to thank all the folks at OC Talk Radio and Paul and Sophia and everybody that makes the show happen. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk Real Estate. There you have it. You've been listening to Let's Talk Real Estate, your weekly BS with Barry Saywitz about the current state of the real commercial real estate market right here in Southern California. On Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio, streaming live from our studio here at the University of California Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center. <laughs>